This week's show is supported by Nikon USA, whose latest camera is the Nikon Z8. Its compact design and user-friendly form factor are combined with a state-of-the-art autofocus and sensor technology, making it an ideal tool for any photographer producing still, video, or both. Whether you're upgrading from an older DSLR or making the step up to a full-frame sensor, find out how the Z8 can transform and elevate your photography by visiting Nikon USA forward slash podcast Z8. We also have the support of the Charcoal Book Club. Their carefully curated selections reflects the best in contemporary photography and all for a reasonable price. And they are delivered directly to your doorstep each month. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. It's a great way to begin or expand your photo library. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the promo code TheCandidFrame at checkout. Being part of a family is about the life you experience together. The memories and the stories shape how you see yourself and each other. A few of those stories get passed on over generations, creating narratives beyond that of a single life. However, there are also stories that remain untold, secrets that are kept. The unspoken also shapes the family and the story they tell about themselves. But what happens when a person in the family makes secrecy his career? Michael Honegger's father was a Cold War spy. He was much like a character you might have read about in a Jean Le Carré novel set in post-war Berlin. Clandestine meetings, secret codes, and hidden recording devices were all part of his father's repertoire. When young Michael was curious about something odd he had witnessed, his father would ask, Do you have a need to know? The Need to Know is the name of Michael's monograph, and it's not only an exploration of this time in his childhood and his father's work, but an examination of the spycraft at the height of the Cold War. Personal images created both by him and his father are found alongside images of the tools of the trade, including disguised spy cameras. The project illustrates how personal and mundane a life of secrecy can be. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Congratulations on, on, on your book. Well, thank you. Did you get a copy? Yeah, I, see, I saw a video uh, walkthrough of it, so I'm very, very much looking forward to it, because it's, it's really an interesting um, design. I mean, the, the work and the right, project is fantastic, but the design itself adds uh, a, a really special element to it. Absolutely. I, I was, couldn't be happier with the designer, who, uh, Aneta Kovalchuk. She's so creative. And I found out uh, when I was in Warsaw doing the signings a few weeks ago that uh, she's self-taught. And really? Yeah, all of her designing just comes from within, and she was named one of the top ten um, design uh, graphic artists in Poland last year. So uh, I was I was very happy to have the opportunity to work with her and oh, that's see her fantastic. creativity. 
So let, let's start talking about this. We'll talk about a lot of other things as well, but let's let's jump into the project in the book, which is revolves around your dad. And sure. I, I'm curious to know how old are you, and when you started getting a sense that you're when you found out or had a sense that your dad's career was that of uh, a spy. Well, I, I think it. It didn't uh, make itself clear until we moved to Germany. And, and the reason, you know, we had been in Florida before that. And, you know, he went to work like any dad. And, uh, but when we moved to Germany, uh, we started getting, as a family, we were told, you know, we're, we're only 35 kilometers. We were posted to Kassel in Germany. And we were told we're only 35 kilometers from the East German border. And, and you begin to realize that, um, first of all, my father, because he spoke fluent German, uh, was a, a bit unusual even in uh, the Office of Special Investigations where he worked, because there weren't many German speakers uh, you know, it was the Air Force, and uh, these were agents that were sent from the States to Germany in rotation. But he was, a, he was a bit unusual because he spoke German, and um, it was then that, you know, people, things started happening, or he would say, do you have the need to know, whenever we would ask any questions relating to his work. So, and it became kind of a family joke. Uh, but, the, but at that point, you know, I was 10 years old when we got there. And, and we stayed for four years without uh, going back to the States at all during that time. You begin to, you know, put two and two together. I'd visit his office and it was, you know, I mean, they were, it was like a normal office, but uh, nobody would talk about anything significant when I was around, so <laughs> it was always, you know, more joking and uh, just uh, sort of a joie de vivre. But uh, now it was, it was when things, for example, that we would go away on, normally on a Sunday, uh, there would be some sort of outing and uh, it was it's very a very German thing to do you know you go out to a restaurant at lunch and um, then you go for a hike in the woods or something like that after lunch and that was our, one of our routines and uh, we we did that and my father would disappear he would say go into the restaurant and get a table, he'd tell my mother uh, to get a table, and we would all go in. And about a half hour later, he'd show up. And, you know, once in a while, you'd say, where'd you go? And he'd say, do you have the need to know? And that <laughs> meant just change the subject and, and have lunch. And so and those those were clues that... that um, and then, you know, when you got that answer, you just, uh, 
a few times you, you got the explanation that, you know, your father's work is sensitive and uh, you can't talk about it. So, Yeah, it's really fascinating because I think all families have secrets. Mm-hmm. And, but this was like a higher level than, than the usual. <laughs> but but at least at least for me it's it's very strange that later on when you're older when you realize what the secret was and you and you and you, and you remember that you were a witness to something that really didn't completely make sense but once you get the information that your parents are holding back or other relatives are holding back all of a sudden it goes oh now it makes sense so you sure. must have had a, a bunch of moments like that coming up when you look back and you realize, oh, wow, okay, now I get it. Well, absolutely. And um, I was fortunate. I was able to talk to my father a bit um, after he retired. And, uh, you know, he never talked about specific uh, incidents. But, you know, I mean, I... I an intelligent life form and even at, at 12 I knew something was peculiar when somebody would come to the door uh, and you know the classic slouch hat and uh, raincoat uh, and he would spend the night on our sofa in the living room and then disappear in the morning and when I would ask who was that um, you know I always got and it was obviously a German uh, because they, my father was speaking to them in German. And, uh, you know, he left. And later on, you know, you, you put two, two and two together. It was one of his agents. And there was probably some reason he needed a place to stay that night. So, um, or, I mean, there were a number of incidents like that. My, one evening, my parents wanted to go to, went out for, to go to a movie. And my sister, brother, and I were at the apartment, and uh, a woman came to the door, and um, she was selling something. I forget what it was, books or, or uh, pastries. I, I just don't remember. But um, she started grilling my sister about where, what does your father do? Um, where does he work? A uh, whole series of things that and my sister, being clever, uh, told her it was you know, none of her business and told her to leave. And when my parents returned from the film, my father, he, she, she told him what had happened. My father went ballistic, um, that, the, that they would come to his home when he wasn't mm. there. And, you know, it was obvious. I mean, at the time, we, we thought something, there was something wrong with this woman. We didn't put two and two together. It wasn't, this was one of those after the fact um, revelations that, that um, and we talked about as a family later on. So, but those kinds of things were the things that, uh, that, you know, that stunned you. I mean, I did learn, <laughs> there were a few wows, even while I was doing research for this book, um, I discovered 
you know, my father worked at a base, a military base that was about eight kilometers from Kassel, from the, the neighborhood where we lived. We lived in a, sort of a German, a German community. We didn't live in any kind of um, base uh, at that time. Um, and, and we would go swimming at this base uh, because they had movies on the weekends for kids and they had a swimming pool and so um, in the summer I remember going swimming at this pool and when I was doing research uh, for the book I was researching what, what the base was all about and it turns out there was uh, a missile emplacement under the swimming pool and um, here we were frolicking up above, and the missiles aimed at uh, the east uh, were right below the pool. Uh, for I mean, it was for obviously random reasons. I mean, I don't know why that missile base was missile uh, installation was there, but uh, it would have been active because at the height of the Cold War, uh, we were there at the height of the Cold War. So it was you know the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, all of those things were go the Berlin Wall going up. Um, all of that was happening, and it was very tense. So, what, what, what were the responsibilities that your father father had, and how easy or hard was it to find to find out? Well, it wasn't. It was not easy to find out because, first of all, the I did a freedom of information request to the Air Force and got. Um, we have nothing on what you want uh, back in a letter. And I'm sure if I pursued it, I was pretty specific about what I wanted about cases he might have worked on. And um, that was really what was most interesting to me. And they came back and said, I there was nothing. But um, I'm convinced that's not true. They may still be classified, uh, but I don't know why they would be 60 years later. But you never know with the military. So um, they have their, their ways. So. <laughs> but, um, you know, in terms of... Uh, trying to find, I, I, I did, I mean, I knew what he was doing. He was running agents into East Germany because where Castle was located geographically, very close to the border, as I mentioned, the East German border, which was, uh, you know, basically uh, totally, you couldn't go across except at one crossing point at Marienborn in northern Germany, and that was very tightly controlled. And as, a, as, a, as an American, I couldn't have gone across, probably, uh, at that time. But the other, the other aspect of it was that we were right near, not far from uh, the area called the Fulda Gap. And the Fulda Gap, I also learned in doing research. I didn't realize this at the time. But uh, the Fulda Gap was the most vulnerable point between East and West Germany. 
and in terms of a Russian potential for a Russian invasion, because they had heavy artillery on the other side of, of this gap. And uh, so, so getting information on what was happening uh, with the Russians, with the East Germans, particularly though the Russians, um, was rather critical at that point. And, uh, and that, that's what my father was doing. Yeah, it's really fascinating. My, my knowledge of, you know, spying during the Cold War is, the, is a, a, is a La Carre novel. <laughs> Like Smiley's people, you know, or a movie or, or a television show. And you, you actually were kind of witness to sort of what was going on. Uh, and so you, you, you likely, you know, were aware of those fictional, you know, versions of it. Um, it must have been interesting to sort of compare what those, those novels and films and television shows were doing compared to what you experienced on your own. What was, was that kind of odd? Was it odd that just to just to see things and go, oh, that's what my dad did? Oh well, you know, I'm a great fan of Le Carre as well, and any kind of espionage. Um, uh, I've, in doing this book, I did a lot of research and read a lot, particularly about the Stasi, the East German secret police, mm-hmm. and they were pretty um, amazing. In, in terms of what they were capable of doing. And uh, that was eye-opening. But, yeah, I mean, those, those films, I, I think there's, there's one by uh, the Richard Burton film. Uh, I think it was based, um, oh, what's it called? I'm, I'm blanking at the moment on the name of the film, but where he... Uh, it's a Lake Carré uh, novel, one of the first ones. And uh, it shows a lot of the Berlin Wall and, and what was going after the wall went up. And having been to Berlin when I was 12 and seen the wall right after it went up, uh, those films were very realistic in terms of what it felt like, the tension that was created when you were anywhere near the wall. Um, there, there's another incident in, that I describe in, in the book briefly. Of, uh, we went to visit, my sister and I uh, went to visit my, um, a German friend of my parents, a very dear old friend in Berlin. She lived in West Berlin, and we took the duty train, which was the train run by the U.S. military, uh, between West Germany and West Berlin, uh, you know, delivering things, passengers as well as as, as commercial goods, and, um, and you had to have military clearance to get on the train, which my father got us, and my mother had been there uh, a week before the wall went up with some friends of hers to visit this German friend. And um, so my sister and I go up, and immediately our German, uh, our, our host, hostess, uh, took us for a, it had snowed in Berlin, and she took us for a walk along the wall. 
and uh, there was a a brick. You know, everything was bricked up. You know, for example, there'd be a building, uh, and all the windows would be bricked up. But there was always, occasionally, there'd be one brick missing. And so uh, this friend of the family gave my sister a pack of cigarettes. And she said, go put this up to the brick where the hole is and just put this pack of cigarettes on, on, the, uh, on the brick, mm-hmm. the, the hole. Well, my sister did that and instantly the pack of cigarettes was whisked away. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there was a happy, happy East German on the other side. Um, but those, those sorts of things, um, you know, I was taking pictures. In fact, some of the pictures are in the, in the book. Uh, some of those, that's another sort of fun side element um, that pleased me immensely because towards the end of doing research, I discovered a whole trove of slides at my mother's house that I had overlooked somehow because she had them stashed away in a closet somewhere. And so I looked through these slides and realized half of them were shot in Germany during that period. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And part of the, the whole book is that it's, contemporary work, but it's also work back there that was taken both by you and your father. Right. All within six months of, six months of each other. Yeah. And that, that uh, really quite, it was quite exciting. And they were, they had deteriorated the slides. And um, after I scanned them, I, I thought, you know, I loved the way the deterioration showed the aging, you know, the aging of the of the uh, photo and it gave it a kind of a a depth that you would not normally have with just a, a picture of checkpoint charlie you know mm. which one of them is uh, a picture of checkpoint charlie but 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 it has the old cars coming across it's not uh, contemporary at all so you do get that feeling The Nikon Z8 is a camera with a build and form factor that users of the legendary Nikon D850 have enjoyed and appreciated. But this camera is smaller and lighter, featuring the latest in sensor and autofocus technology to meet virtually any photographic need, including sports, wildlife, and portraiture. Whether shooting still, video, or both, the Nikon Z8 is meant to be the right tool for any occasion. Its 45.7 megapixel full-frame stack sensor delivers rich detail and beautiful color. It features blistering fast and accurate autofocus, including subject detection developed with deep learning technology. Its VR technology provides up to six stops of image stabilization when a tripod isn't an option. It features internal 8K at 60p, as well as the ability to produce 100p at 4K. Its pro-grade construction features an eco-friendly carbon fiber chassis, premium weather sealing, a sensor shield, and dual card slots. So you'll enjoy a camera that delivers even under the harshest of conditions. 
Learn more about the Z8 and how it can make a difference in your photography by visiting Nikon USA forward slash podcast Z8. So what, what led you to make the decision to work on to work on this project at the, at the point in time in your life that you were? Well, there were a couple of things. Uh, it happened rather serendipitously. Uh, I was between photo projects, and I took um, a workshop in Maine uh, at Maine Media. And uh, it was with uh, Aline Smithson. And I thought, well, you know, I'll try. And I just needed some kind of whenever I get into these lulls between projects, I like to take a workshop that stimulates my thoughts and gives me some ideas. So we had the, during the workshop, it was a small group of us, and um, we did these introduction duos, dyads, and the person interviewing me, you know, I was going through, you go through your life story, and. And um, I mentioned, oh, and my father was a spy. Well, uh, the person <laughs> went back and introduced me to the group and, and, and talked extensively about, oh, and the most interesting thing I discovered was his father was a spy during the Cold War. And Aline perked up at this <laughs> <laughs> and started, because um, I had said I was looking for a project and she, she said, well, that sounds like the seeds of a really interesting project. And she started providing me with um, materials that, that, that uh, sparked a... I kept thinking, well, you know, I, I don't want to... I, I want to do something that's contemporary as well as archival. So, and she started giving me some, a few books um, or whole, actually a whole uh, quite a few books but one in particular that made me realize uh, was Amani Willett's uh, book The Disappearance of Joseph Plummer and it's published by Overlaps yeah, out of London and I was what intrigued me was that he used um, archival, archival materials and, and contemporary images that he had taken and, and blended them beautifully. And I was quite taken with that and suddenly clicked. And I thought, well, I, I can do this. You know, this is, this is something that would be really interesting for one thing. And um, the more I got into it, the more I realized I really wanted to know more. And uh, so the need to know was you know, not just a response of my father, but there's the double edge in the title of the book. Uh, was my need to know more. And so the more, I, like I said, the more I dug into it, um, the more fascinating it became. Um, and it was like a puzzle. And it's, yeah. it's a, pu a puzzle with missing parts still. <laughs> Yeah, because the, the, it, it comes off when you look at the book as if it's it's part biography, part spycraft, 
part personal diary. You know, it's an amalgam of all these sort of different things. Um, you have images in there of uh, the, the tools of spycraft, some of which are just completely fascinating and just mind-blowing. And then there are reproductions of, of teletypes. And there are also secret pages where things are hidden. Um, uh, but talk about sort of processing, because those are a lot of different ways of sort of telling a story beyond just the singular photographs. Um, tell me about sort of approaching it. You talked earlier about finding, finding the, you know, the old slides, but you know, it's, it's quite a task to put together a, a project like that. Talk to me about, you know, how you thought through what kind of materials, images that you needed in order to sort of flesh this out into something. Actually, it was it, there was a lot of trial and error that went into this. Um, I I took there must have been um, I must have it probably seven or eight hundred photos uh, that are whittled down to what, what maybe sixty in the book. Um, the process was very interesting. First of all, I wanted I did research on. Um, trying to get documents and I got I had very little success there because for example I, I contacted uh, the East German government well, it's now Western or now it's the German government had opened up the files of the Stasi to the public and in doing research I, I found out about this and I wrote to them there was a, an application procedure and I wrote and asked if they had any um, records of my father's name or, or any documents relating to my father. And it was, I, they responded and they were, they, they were very um, quick in responding. And they said they had done a, a search and that they had come up with nothing, but this was not unusual because they said that when the regime fell in East Germany uh, at the time of uh, you know, the reunification, uh, the first thing the Stasi did was destroy any international uh, records. And so they were shredded, all, almost everything. And there was a reason, for, uh, many reasons for this. Um, but they shredded anything related to um, anyone outside of um, East Germany. And they did it because they still had active spies in West Germany and they wouldn't, didn't want to divulge uh, or reveal who they were. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and also, you know, it, those were the most important assets to the Stasi. So they destroyed those records first. And they said, when I wrote to them, they actually said that. They said that most, they had very few records uh, that related internationally. It was purely, and, and it caused a furor in East Germany because people saw, East Germans saw how, how they had been spied upon uh, by the Stasi. And they, it, there was a great uh, deal of 
you know, your you found out your neighbor was spying on you, and it was due to the records that they could could now see. And um, so, anyway, the record search didn't didn't turn up a whole lot, except uh, it was interesting. To the process was interesting, but then I started thinking about well. I, I found out there was a spy museum in, in Berlin. And so I contacted the curator and I said, would it be possible uh, to come to Berlin and photograph um, in your archives the, the tools of the trade? Because I thought, well, I'm going to probably find quite an array in their collection. And sure enough, the, the curator who's just absolutely charming and uh, so helpful. Um, he said, pick a date and I will, and he asked what, what kind of tools I was looking for. And I explained uh, that I wanted the things used by the Stasi or uh, foreign uh, intelligence services. And so we went up to Berlin for a, about a week. And I spent a whole day uh, photographing at the uh, spy museum. In, in, uh, he just brought down trays and racks of, of the tools that they had in their, their archives. And uh, then he gave me a, a ticket to the museum, which was really quite interesting. Uh, it's very interactive. And so, so what yeah. were some of the objects that you photographed? And, and was there one that was that was a particular standout? Well, there there were a couple that surprised me. I, I, in the book, there are I think I think there are eight. Um, the, the ones that you know, I have seen bugs before because I had worked in East Eastern Europe quite a bit right after the fall of communism, but in those countries, but. Um, uh, the, the most interesting one, I thought, and, and bizarre one, was a watering can uh, that was used by the Stasi at funerals of dissidents. And they would, um, there was a camera in the bottom of a, a, a just a, an average watering can. And they, they would have a gardener who was actually a Stasi agent, watering flowers or the, or the grass near near the burial of the dissident, and they would take pictures of, of mourners, of people mourning the dissident, figuring they were also you know, birds of a feather. And uh, I thought that was, you know, truly rock bottom, <laughs> rock bottom sleaze, but... Uh, uh, anyway, it was interesting. Uh, there were all sorts of cameras, hidden cam cameras hidden in purses uh, for men or women. Um, uh, there were bugs. There were there was this one isn't in the in the book, but there was a um, uh, a, a tube that was used as a listening device, uh, it was kind of a bug, but uh, it was all very ornate and uh, had to be inserted in the wall. 
And there were also a whole series of um, dead drop uh, tools. And the dead drop is, you know, when you're passing information uh, from, from this, the agent to the handler. Uh, it was a long nail, and this one is in the book. It's a long nail with micro, microfiche can fit into the nail and then rolled up. And then they would put the nail in some in an inconspicuous spot in a tree or, and nail it in a little bit and, or, or wherever there was a place to nail it. And then, then the agent would tell the handler where it was and they'd go pick it up at another time. So uh, those kinds of I mean, some really interesting things. The other the other thing that um, I was able to do when I was in Berlin, I had a source who I cannot discuss because he asked that I not discuss it, but uh, who gave me a list of all of the um, Stasi safe houses in East Berlin and the addresses for these safe houses. And so I went to the whole list, of, and you can't get into the buildings, they're apartment buildings, but I did get into one and photographed in the hallway. And it was more to the ethos of the place and yeah. that it was kind of interesting. But they were just normal apartments and uh, random places in East Berlin. So. So that was, that was one aspect of it. Another aspect of it, I, I did some recreations that didn't work. Um, that was when, you know, I tried to do, um, <laughs> I ordered some Stasi uni East German uniforms off of eBay and uh, had friends posing in different places with some of this, to try and get the sense of the, the border mm -hmm. uh, and border guards. And actually, there was a very funny story. While I was shooting this, I, I was shooting it near near my apartment here in Nice, up in in some woods across the street. And I had this friend modeling. Two friends actually were part of this shoot. And uh, while we're, it was a pub, it's a public park, and some somebody walked by right when I was starting the shoot, and the guy's in uniform, right, the model. And uh, they, they stopped and were shocked and, and looked very shocked. And I, I said, excuse me, is, is something wrong? And they said, we're from East Germany, and we recognize the uniform. And mm -hmm. it was such a, such a kind of serendipitous moment. Uh, and they weren't pleased. <laughs> oh, I bet, yeah. <laughs> they knew exactly the type of uniform it was. So. Anyway, so I did those kind of recreations, and um, I also was taking, um, getting critiques from fellow photographers, and um, finally felt that, the, that the, the recreations just weren't making it. And uh, so I stopped doing that. And then I took a trip to Germany. And COVID hit also during this period. So it was a bit disruptive to my uh, initial plans. But I went back to the base, not just the bases, but the homes where we live. I re-photographed things. Um, 
I went back to the base where my dad worked in Castle. I spent um, uh, some time at many of the border um, crossing points. Now you can cross. Well, there's no physical border anymore. But they have border museums at this point. And um, so I went, I visited all the ones near Castle. And uh, it was really quite fascinating. So, and then I went into East Germany trying to get, uh, I had asked some German friends that are still in Kassel um, where I should go in East Germany to get a sense of, of where, where something still hadn't been, you know, Germany is so developed now that, and it has been 50 years. So I was trying to get a sense of things past. And uh, they sent me to, a, they told me about a few towns that I went to and I photographed and uh, did a lot of photography in Leipzig and, and points east. And uh, so I spent about a week doing that. And some of those photos are in the book, uh, a few of them. but. It is because the more I found them, you know, it just all fit together. So some of the images are from a time when in the past, for example, I was in Berlin 10, 10 years ago, and the wall was much more um, prevalent, and, and still there were still many pieces of the wall, well, it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And now you go, and there's just, just this one stretch of what's left of the wall. So but I got some great shots then. The 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 book is not just a a, hust, uh, a document of this particular time in terms of spying and intrigue and east west relationships. It's really a personal one. It's 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 sort of like a self-portrait or biography of yours and of your father, and and having an opportunity to sort of explore that in the way that you have, how how has that changed or shifted or um, influenced the way that you see your relationship with him when you now that you've sort of learned this and you start thinking about the kind of relationships. You, kind of relationship you, you had with him? Well, I, I was very lucky. Um, I always had a, a really fine relationship with, with my father and my parents. Um, my whole, I think we're very, still a very close family. Uh, my mother will celebrate her 99th year. Oh, uh, wonderful. Later this year. So uh, she's very excited to get the book. It's supposed to arrive this week, but uh, uh, no. I, I, I the more I learned from the book, for example, um, I, I learned later that my father had. My parents did three tours of Germany. The first one was in. It was every year ending with a nine. In 49, they were there for three years uh, in 1949. And that's why I was, I was born there. Uh, in 59, we went back for four years. And in 69, they went back for another four years. 
And in his third tour in 69 to 73, um, he worked extensively with the German FBI and uh, was, was actually involved in, in the capture of the, the Bader-Meinhof Red, Red Brigade, uh, which was very notorious in Germany at that time. They were anarchists. And there's been films about them. Uh, uh, at that time of the early 70s, there was a lot of that going on throughout Europe. Uh, these, these red factions. And, um, and so I was very, very proud of what he did. Um, and I think he would be very proud of this book because it, it's... Um, it's a touching, uh, it, it touches upon uh, family in a big way. And uh, I think he would, he would get a, a real kick out of it. Unfortunately, he had a, a massive stroke um, in 1988. And uh, my mother cared for him religiously for 19 years before he passed. And he, he never regained um, the competency that he had prior to the stroke. So, mm. in a, in a sense, his memory was was shot, and so I never could pursue things after his stroke. And luckily, I had had the time, some moments with him before that, where we talked about his his career. So, the, um, some of your work leading up to this is self portraiture. Right. Which sort of you, you you you're not just taking pictures of yourself, but you're sort of interpreting your, your yourself in a variety of sort of different ways. And as I said before, this book is as much a self-portrait, even though you're not in sort of included in yourself in, in the contents of photographs in the with the type of photographs that you have in the past, right? So, but how how has that how has this experience of this book? How, how may it have it influenced the way that you see your self-portraiture going forward if you're going to continue those types of projects? You know, it's, it's interesting. I've gone through various phases with the self-portraits. Um, they all started about... Um, the, ser the serious work started uh, with a workshop with Arno Minkin, ironically. Oh, Arno, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. And um, the master of self-portraiture. But um, I was in one of those lulls between projects and uh, took a workshop with him in Norway. And he challenged me to do self-portraits the entire week we were together. And uh, some of the earlier ones uh, are, 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 were just such fun to do. Uh, and as it, as it, then I, I also went into a phase where I, I was shooting all in black and white. And, uh, and I tried a totally different uh, perspective on the self-portrait where, where, you know, I, I tried to come up with um, more provocative in terms of, in terms of probing who I am and where mm -hmm. I am in life. Uh, 
And the earlier ones are more humorous. Uh, the black and white ones get more serious um, about uh, things I've learned in life and my outlook on, on life and uh, aging, for one thing. And um, I'm a, a, a gay man and uh, have, a, have had a partner for 41 years. And uh, early on in, 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 in developing this, this work, I thought, you know, I have nothing to lose um, except, you know, being, being a gay man and what it was like in the, the 80s, for example, and when I was when I was young and mm-hmm. footloose, um, it changes your your whole perspective on on who you are and, and, and that whole experience. Um, there was this wonderful evolution that I think I captured in some of the self-portraitures. So. I'm very, I'm very pleased with it. I will, I've decided not to to focus entirely on that now. But I do. For example, I've been doing some street work and uh, using a lot of uh, reflections also in, in the street work. And uh, I noticed that again, I was doing capturing myself in some of these images because of the reflections. And I thought, well, it's just another variation on the theme that, mm-hmm. that keeps re- that keeps recurring. And it's interesting that you bring it up. I, I hadn't thought of it specifically about it with the book, but you're absolutely correct in, in what you were saying. That there, you know, that there are elements of that in it. I, I didn't realize that about your sexual orientation. And when you shared it with me, I, something just clicked in my mind. It's just like, oh, the, especially because of the age in which you came up, you know, uh, gay is the idea of of secrets of of mm. of, 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 you know, of you seeing the people around you and going, who needs to know? Well, you know, just like I, your dad, just like your dad. Yeah. Is like, okay. <laughs> Do you know, in one of, one of my critiques, um, a, a fellow photographer said exactly that. He said, well, you're, you're missing the elephant in the room, Michael. Uh, the elephant in the room is you, you've been hiding. Mm-hmm. You've had your secrets all, these li- all your life. And uh, fortunately, I don't have to be that way now. Uh, but early on in my career, there was no question. Uh, it was a major factor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's, it's 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 a lyrical parallel to yeah your sort of your dad's life and the way both of you had to live your lives at at, at one point. Um, it's it it I can't help but think that it helps inform the way that you see his life and the way that you see the work. That without that experience, it wouldn't look the same as it does now. No, I think you're. I think you're absolutely, absolutely right. It's. Uh, it kind of. It kind of. I mean, I was out to my father, so I, it's not an issue there. Uh-huh. My family has always been very supportive of it, of who I am, um, not of it. Uh, misspoke there, but no, it's. 
it's uh, it's an interesting parallel that that I completely buy. So, mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. It makes it all the, it makes all the more richer and beautiful. The Charcoal Book Club is back as a sponsor and wants to share a special event coming in 2024. The Chico Review is an annual event that gathers photographers to celebrate their love for photography. It's more than just an opportunity to share your work and meet publishers and editors. It's a rare opportunity to be surrounded and immersed by a community that prioritizes photography and being a photographer over the latest camera review. If you've never had such an experience, mark the date and register for the event scheduled for March 17th through the 24th in Prey, Montana. Find out more by visiting ChicoReview.com or the Charcoal Book Club website at CharcoalBookClub.com. Talk to me about... Making this a book because you talk about sort of the inspiration for it came with Elaine, uh, Elaine's workshop, um, and a lot of people may work on personal projects and and then put together material and go, okay, what next? Because the whole idea of publishing, especially now, is so much more complicated. It used to be very straightforward. You know, you had the traditional gatekeepers and they would decide what would get published and what doesn't get published. Now, it's a little more wild, wild west. And a lot of the onus now is on the artist to sort of make make things happen. What what did that look like for you? Well, that pretty much... Um, <laughs> I have to chuckle because it, um, it was very much the wild, wild west. I mean, luckily I had uh, some good guidance. Um, uh I'll explain. I start when I first started the project. I, you know, I, I would enter um, certain competitions, and one that that came up that was rather significant was by the Blow Up Press in Warsaw, Poland. Um, they have an annual uh, competition to. Uh, the winner of the competition uh, is gets published by them, you know, by their press. And I was, I had done enough research on the publishing world in general to know that um, it would be a tough slog uh, for this book um, because you know it's it's very. It's it's a, a niche kind of thing, um, and there are only certain there's certain certain presses that, that deal with these things. But what I what intrigued me about Blow Up Press was in their in their publicity was uh, they said we're looking for stories, and I thought, well, I think I have a story here, mm-hmm. and so I I entered their their book competition, and I was shortlisted, and I wasn't chosen. Um, for the book but I felt good that I had been shortlisted and um, so in the in the uh, a year passed and during that year I shot a lot that's when I went to Germany COVID had passed or sort of 
uh, everything's relative. But I, I went to Germany. I had a lot of new images. Um, so I wrote to them the next year, and I said, can I resubmit this project? Because I've done some more work on it. And they said, yes, they'd be happy to see what I've done. So I resubmitted. I got shortlisted again, but I, again, was not, was not selected. And so I thought, well, at least, you know, I got shortlisted again. So they were coming to the photo festival in Arles uh, last year. It was last year. And I, I contacted them and I thought, I'd like to meet these people. They were very, very nice to work with. And uh, I just wanted to stop by there. They, they were selling, they had, they were at the book fair. And I thought I would stop by. Well, the day I was going, there was a train strike in France and I couldn't get over there. And so I contacted them and I said, is there any chance you're coming to Nice on your way back to Poland? And they were. So I said, how about stopping? And I'd, I'd like to show you, you know, let's have dinner or something. So that happened. We went to dinner and I was so impressed with her design uh, ability that I asked would she be willing to design my book and I didn't get into the whole publishing thing at all mm -hmm. and she said yes and we talked about how that would work and she said I can't start until January but you know I'm happy to do this so I thought good at least I have a designer and at that point I started contacting other presses and sending out you know voluminous PDFs and um, letters of inquiry and all that sort of thing. And um, then I thought, after I talked to them, I thought, well, I'm going to ask if, if she's designing it. And she was, she was eager to design it. She said she liked the project. And, and, um, and so we were, we were both very happy. And so I, I contacted them again and talked to Gregorsch, who is the uh, publishing side. He, Aneta does the design side. It's a husband and wife duo. And we had a Zoom call, and I said, look, would you be interested in publishing the book if she's designing it? And they said, well, we'd like you to make a few changes. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. And the changes were so minor, in my opinion, um, that, you know, I said, this is a no-brainer. And so we agreed, and, we, and the contract evolved from there. But, um, and they've been terrific um, ever since. And yeah. It's, it's, I, I, I find that I was lucky, but I was also uh, persistent. Um, and... I, while I was in New York um, this past week, I was having a conversation with some photographers about contests, right? Because there was a, a fellow, Jared, who is sort of a, a mentee of mine. And he has this amazing photograph of his grandparents in their Sunday best. And it looks like something that was shot by Walker Evans. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's a show-stopping image, right? And it was just like, boy, you got to put those things in contest. You got to get it out there. 
And he was kind of like, he wasn't very enthusiastic. And I had to explain to him, man. And someone else made the point. It's like, you, so many people who should be putting their images in contests and putting their work out there, they don't do it. That's why when they announce the winners, people look at it and go, I could have done better than that. Exactly. Right? And it's like, yeah, but you didn't send your work in. Because mm-hmm. to make, and I've been the judge of contests, and the great majority of the, of the, of the work is is nothing to write home about. But then the stuff that does stand out is like is like, you know, the, the cream, right? It's a very small mm-hmm. percentage of it, and it's like, man, and like you just said, if you've got something and you're passionate about it, you got to put it out there. You got to share it with people, because. The idea of turning this into something, a book, an exhibition, something, right? So much of it is going to be built on the relationships that you build. And if the things stay in your drawer or on your hard drive space, none of it's going to happen with that work. And the, the photograph is meant to be experienced by people other than you. Well, you know, you know. One one aspect of that that, that hit me uh, so markedly with the book, I thought, do you know if I, okay the print run was eight hundred copies, and I thought eight hundred copies, and how many people will see my images? Many more than a gallery show mm-hmm. when you think about it. Um, so the work is out in the world and um, I'm getting more exposure than I would at a gallery. Yeah. I, I hate to say it, but you know everybody clamors to get into a gallery and, and it is, it's, it's a great thing if you do. Um, but how many people actually see the work other than you know it, it evolves into TikTok or some social media thing and um, no I it, it gave me a great sense of satisfaction thinking about it in those terms right? yeah and and we met because of a portfolio review because you, you exactly. signed up for a portfolio review and I, I don't know if I would have discovered the work you know um, otherwise and I was just so excited about what I was seeing there with our brief I don't know how, how many minutes we had together. It wasn't very long, but it was enough to to for me to really embrace it and, and to invite you to be on the show. And and I think that it's important for people who are listening to recognize that it's not about you know likes that you get in Instagram or, or it's 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 about finding the people who get your work, who are enthusiasts about it, and that love it the way you do. And that doesn't have to be hundreds of thousands, you know, and only as in your case, it may be 800 people who buy the book, but that's 800 people who become invested in your images and your story that otherwise wouldn't. And Absolutely. sometimes that's all that matters. No, and, and, and quite frankly, it gives me such a great sense of satisfaction. You know, uh, I mean, I think... A show or an exhibition is, is obviously uh, exciting, but it was interesting. I, ha- I have to tell this story because it relates to this. Um, with, with my book, uh, the publisher 
and designer initially wanted it to be a soft cover. And um, they wrote to me, they kept hedging on the cover. And uh, so when we got into negotiation, first of all, I told them I wanted it to be mysterious. I wanted it to be, you know, the book in general. I wanted there to be secrets in the book. And uh, they, they delivered on all that. And then they come back and they, they came back and said that the cover would be, they'd like to do a soft cover. And I went, mm, no. And I, I, I really, it was the only time I kind of put my foot down. And I wrote to them and I said, listen, I'm, I'm 70, 73 years old. I'm not sure how many more books are in my future. But I want this one, particularly relating to my, my family, I want it to be hardcover because it's a legacy. And uh, I want that legacy to last a little longer than a, hard, than a soft cover. So, and also it has a little more gravitas in my mind mm -hmm. uh, than, than a soft cover, but and I'm not denigrating soft covers. <laughs> it was particularly for this book. <laughs> well, I'm glad we met and you had the opportunity to, to, to share it with me. Um, well, thank you. I really appreciate it as well. Um, my last question is the one that I ask mm -hmm. each guest. I ask them to recommend another okay. photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? I think, you know, it's interesting. I just, um, there are many uh, when I think about it. Um, I just, I've been following Richard Rinaldi for many years, mm. and um, being a gay man, I was interested in a gay gay photographer, or a fellow gay photographer, and um, I, I heard him give a, a lecture a couple of weeks ago, um, a Zoom lecture, at Main Media, and uh, I was intrigued in some of the parallels in our stories and, and also in his photography, his focus on portraiture. I, I, don't, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but um, he did the Touching Strangers project. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I was, I was um, following him after he, the initial project, the Fall River Boys, uh, project that he did, I guess, in the early 2000s. And, but after hearing him talk, uh, it really struck me uh, about our developmental arcs were very similar. And I'm not talking about in photography, I'm talking personal mm -hmm. development. But, uh, but he's, I've always admired his portraiture and, uh, I mean, there are many others. I, I, the list is long, but... Uh, well, that sounds like a great um, recommendation. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much. It was a, a great pleasure to sit down and talk with you again, and for much longer. <laughs> the Baryonyx, the pleasure was mine, believe me. Thank you. It's, it's, you're, a, you're a charming host. <laughs> thank you. And I thank you.
thanks to all the people who have recently supported us on Patreon or by making a donation. As I've said before, we are reliant on you for you know being able to sustain the show as it is and as we hope to make it in the in the coming year. And there are only a handful of people, or less of a handful of people, who actually support the show financially and it would really make a difference especially during times like these if you could contribute as little as two to five dollars a month it would make a huge difference and it would mean so much to us so you can contribute five ten twenty dollars or more if you can afford it monthly by becoming a patreon supporter and you can do that by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame again it's patreon.com forward slash the candid frame thanks Thanks to Michael for joining us. Find out more about his work by visiting michaelhoneggerphotos.com. And if you're a fan of our work, you can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on social networks, be it X, formerly Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Remember to use the hashtag TheCandidFrame. You can support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to David Mullen, John Wayne, Stephen McFarlane, and Corrine Von Redding for their recent contributions. We relaunched our newsletter if you want to receive updates on everything related to TCF and book recommendations and announcements for special events and workshops from us and some of our guests. Please sign up by visiting our website. And if you can't find every show episode on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candor Frame app available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frames audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at the theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>